Okay, we're live, and uh, I am going to speak today, after consulting with some mentors, I'm going to speak a little more about virtue. I know I risk being kind of a, a broken record, for those of you uh, old enough to remember records, uh, what that means. Um, uh, but I think virtue is a difficult enough concept in our contemporary world that it's worth meditating on. The other thing is... Um, it is, uh, well, several reasons I want to continue to focus on it. One is that in the rule, St. Benedict in several places, when he's assigning jobs to the abbot, to the prior, to the cellarer, to the guest master, whoever it is, he almost always says that this monk should be distinguished in his uh, conduct and in his teaching. And what he's referring to is a very old tradition. At, at the time of his lifetime, it's already about a thousand-year-old tradition, believe it or not. Uh, but it's the acquisition of virtue uh, to lead. Uh, this is the active life. This is the, where we struggle to master ourselves and become productive members of the world. And then teaching corresponds to the contemplative life, knowing the truth. And again, in this tradition, to know the truth presupposes that you have corrected your, your passions, that your passions tend to have their own illogic, I was going to say their own logic, but in fact, um, that's the funny thing about human passions is that they tend, uh, because ultimately they go to God, an infinite object, our passions have this way of going askew in infinite ways, right? So we have to correct them and, and make sure that they go toward God. And only then can we start to apprehend the truth at a deep level. There's several other reasons. So it's really intrinsic to our way of life, this idea that we should be growing in virtue, that this is how we will contribute the most. Um, when the Roman Catholic Church opens a case for uh, canonization of a saint, one of the first things they look for is heroic virtue, okay? So there's no sanctity without virtue. Um, the, ne the next thing, so if we want to be holy, we need to be thinking about virtue at some level, maybe not uh, explicitly all the time, but it's good to reflect on it together. Another reason I want to continue <coughs> focusing on it is that uh, our default moral worldview tends to see virtue as connected to a series of rules, okay? So if you want to be courageous, then you should do this, this, and that. And if you don't, we're all going to be kind of disappointed with you, you know? And there's this kind of moral shaming that takes place. Uh, the, the whole constellation of virtue, not that shame and honor are bad in themselves, but we connect them to sort of the performance of certain types of, of uh, rule-bound actions. The virtues are more about the kinds of habits and dispositions we have that lead us to a life that, that is recognizably good and flourishing. And I'm going to come back to that because it's a really important concept. Uh, it's not about having other people or even ourselves labeling ourselves good. He's a good person or, he's, or she's not such a good person or whatever. It, it's actually more objective. It's, it's whether or not our life is kind of working in a way. And normally... Uh, when there are failures in our lives, we can connect it to a failure of virtue in some way. We're, we're not courageous enough to take chances to, to make strides in our life. Or we, we give in to um, uh, addictive behaviors like drinking or, or overeating, uh, not staying in good shape. Um, or we, uh, 
We make bad decisions and then we don't take responsibility for them and correct them the next time. We blame somebody else. So we never really learn uh, how to examine the situation and know what the pitfalls are. So we lack prudence is what I'm saying in that case. Um, so this is just, if, if you want to live a good life, uh, these are the habits that make for good living. And there are all kinds of self-help gurus out there who talk about, you know, habits of successful people and all that. Well, this is actually a very old idea, and there's, there's a lot more to it than you might think. The last reason I want to continue focusing on this, uh, this is our moment in the United States right now is, is the, by far the weirdest time in my lifetime. Um, you know, I, I really think you'd, you'd have to go back. Uh, I was born in 1970. Maybe the summer of 68 was just as weird. I don't know. But uh, um, it just, uh, I don't think I need to elaborate on that for you. I think you're all right in it. And one of the questions that keeps coming up, there's a, a deacon I know, a uh, Byzantine deacon, who has been sort of pestering me like, we need to do something. And uh, um, that's a good, good question. Like, what should we do? Should we, should we uh, push to have the churches open? Should we push people to wear more masks? Should we push to get people vaccinated? Should we get out there and protest the closing down of uh, restaurants? I don't know, to be honest with you. Uh, and I'm not sure for a contemplative monk, it's, it's that germane for me to have an opinion on those things. What I can tell you is that you can always grow in virtue. That's something you can do. You can work on it right now. You can become holier. And uh, so that's something you can do. You don't have to be passive and afraid. You can actually do stuff. You can take control of your life and grow in virtue. What's more, one of the things about the virtues is that they make us more rational. So I, I said at the very beginning, there's this two-stage growth in our lives where we first correct our passions and then we learn the truth. And so one of the difficulties with knowing what to do in the current situation is that uh, um, it seems to me many people are wanting to act out of their passions rather than out of a rational assessment of what might actually be helpful in the situation. Uh, there's a kind of either a, a lethargy that sets in, or I've just got to stay home and, and, and not talk to anybody and be defeatist, or I've got to get out there and protest. Well, in, in somewhere in the middle, there's, there's like proportionality and, uh, you know, achievable goals, you know. But this requires us to use our minds. And, our, and in order to use our minds, we can't be afraid. Uh, we, we can't be making excuses to uh, just watch television all day or something like that. I mean, if, if that's what's happening and, and it's a, a struggle for you, that's where you're at, and I'm not trying to shame you again. But then out of that circumstance, if I'm one of the persons who's afraid of watching a lot of TV, I'm not likely to make productive decisions to help myself or others, right? So first thing I need to do is get myself in order, and I can grow in virtue. And then I might think, you know what? This is something I can actually do. Ta-da, and I'll go out and do it. I was just talking yesterday to someone who is a, a fundraiser for uh, special needs kids. And uh, in her community, there have, un unfortunately, this keeps, this kind of thing keeps happening. There are, you know, there have been more uh, revelations of alleged sexual abuse in a school that was run by Catholic priests back in the 80s. And 
A number of alumni from the school, she went to the school, a number of alumni are, are writing a letter, a public letter, uh, and uh, she was speaking to me about this because she felt like she couldn't sign the letter because the people who are on the school board uh, uh, are, are some of her benefactors, you know, and she needs to work with them. She's gonna be at social gatherings with them. She needs to maintain good relationships with them. They weren't around in the 80s. Like, it's hard to see what they could have done about the situation when it was taking place. Um, but then uh, uh, she sent me a copy of the letter, and I looked at it. I, the biggest problem for me with the letter was that uh, it, it doesn't name any achievable goals. So the, the, it's just kind of an expression of anger and frustration, which is, uh, you know, understandable for sure. Uh, but we need to find ways to funnel that energy from, from righteous anger and the thirst for justice into actual uh, actions that produce a good outcome. Otherwise, just being angry doesn't achieve anything, right? It just, it, it actually hampers us from thinking clearly. So what my suggestion was, well, perhaps you could speak to the people who are the signers of the letter and say, you might be interested in signing it so long as there was a very clear statement of, we would like this one thing to happen, okay? Um, and, and I thought, you know, I, I don't want to go into too many details on this particular case, but this is just a case, again, where there's a, a very complex moral situation here. And uh, the best thing we can do is to think about it clearly and to decide how to address it so that we solve the problem rather than just express frustration, which, is, again, is a, a quite reasonable first step is to be frustrated when there's something like this that takes place. But then at some point we want virtue to kick in and we want to look at the thing, the situation and see, is God calling me to do something here? And can, you know, is, is it reasonable? Will I have a reasonable chance of succeeding? Uh, or will I just make things worse for a lot of people? Uh, so this is the kind of uh, complexity that, say, social media is not good at. And uh, it's through social media that this letter got all of its signatories so far. That's part of the problem, is that people see something, they get angry, and they put their name on it. And uh, um, so, okay, so let me go back now to our situation here. Uh, more reasons to practice virtue. One is that uh, because they are spiritual habits, we're never done. We're never at, we never reach the limit we're never so courageous that we can't become more courageous. Um, we never love so much that we can't love more. That's the special one. In fact, that's an eternal one. We'll, we'll never stop loving more in heaven. And that is the, the primary theological virtue where we'll end today. And then, as I was saying before, another thing that's easy to miss about the virtues is that they are objective and rational. Uh, and when I say they're rational, it's important to understand that, uh, does anybody know what uh, the Latin word for reason is? Yeah, ratio, but it's the same word as English ratio. And that's, that's kind of the idea. It's not simply that I, I proceed logically through a series of causes and effects or, or chains of thinking. But rather, I put myself sort of in relationship with the world. I put myself in relationship uh, <clears throat> in proportion to things as they actually are. 
And so I, I become wise through the exercise of virtue. I, I know how things line up. Um, let me give some examples of this. Uh, oh, and, and the really important thing here is that to become virtuous, intention isn't enough. We, we really have to take account of things as they are. Uh, you know the, the, the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And, and so that's a good classical statement of this idea. Intention is important. And St. Benedict says, you know, when you <coughs> obey, if you obey grudgingly and you have the wrong intention, it'll dock you a few points, right? It's not, it's not, you're not performing as well as you could. But what he's not saying is, if, if your intention is bad, you should disobey. That would be absolutely wrong. The correct action is to obey, and then we strengthen that action. We make it more meritorious by intending it, by wanting to do the right thing and carrying it out the right way. But the action itself, uh, if you go to the catechism, you look at how moral actions are evaluated from a Catholic standpoint, you'll see that the, the action itself is always most important. That's why, uh, for instance, abortion is never justified by good intention. Right? So uh, people who uh, carry out an abortion usually think they're doing something good, but they're wrong. And that's really important to understand. The, the good intention can't possibly make up for the wrong that's being done, right? So on the other hand, uh, when we, as I say, when we have the right, uh, we know the right thing to do, we can vitiate it by having the wrong intention, Okay. But intentions are never enough to grow in virtue. We have to do the thing itself, the right action. So how did we get this concept of the virtues? That, this is a root, I want to come from sort of way back for a moment. In our world today, it's common for people to say that there's no connection between is and ought. You might have heard this. You can't get an ought from an is. And the idea is uh, that just because... Um, I'm a human being doesn't mean there are certain actions that are objectively good for me. It's kind of relativistic. Uh, morals are separated from uh, things, right? Uh, and this goes against what I was saying earlier, that to grow in virtue, which is about doing actions that, that train me to be more myself in a way, I need to have a relationship with things. Like that is an objective reality that makes me a better more flourishing person. So let me show you how you can get an, an ought from an is, okay? Um, so for instance, if, if I have a pocket watch, um, it's a watch, that's what it is. It ought to keep time well, right? If it doesn't, we say, it's a bad watch, right? I bought a lemon, <laughs> okay? If, if I have a cell phone, it is a cell phone, that's what it is. We expect that it will actually have a reasonably strong signal and we'll be able to uh, get on the internet with it, right? Uh, if, it, if we do, if it, if it works really fast, if the touch screen is really responsive, we say, this is a really good phone. It does what a phone ought to do, right? So we got an ought from an is. Uh, how about this? Uh, uh, you know, I, I love to talk about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. I love these debates uh, because I, I, I grew up loving sports. And I was just musing the other day how when I was young, the, you know, the, it was 
kind of taken for granted that Will Chamberlain, Will Chamberlain was the best basketball player ever, and now he doesn't even show up in the conversations. And, uh, but the point is, um, he is a basketball player. He ought to score a lot of points, block shots, play good defense, win a lot of games. If he does, he's a good basketball player, right? We can actually say, we could take the idea of goodness as in basketball and talk about the superlative, greatest. Who's the greatest? There are objective measurements. We can look, how many points did they score? How many championships did they win? Did they make the players around them better? Can we show that? Um, we tend to think uh, one of the greatest players is gonna have to have a long career. If someone's the best player in the game for three years, and he gets injured and never plays again, eh, we probably wouldn't say he's the best basketball player ever. The whole point is, he is a basketball player, he ought to do certain things. If he doesn't do certain things, he gets cut, and he's not a basketball player anymore, right? So we got an is, an ought from an is. Um, cities, let's, let's move uh, further into the more complex human sphere. Uh, you know, there are a lot of debates about whether a certain city is good or bad. And that's intensified this year as we've had uh, protests and we've had questions about defunding police and the effects that that could have, uh, what, what kind of social programs address homelessness, inner city violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of cultural things can you expect when you go there? I certainly have cities. Uh, I, I visited Germany for the first time a few years ago after a general chapter and visited one of our monasteries there. And I'll just say, I liked Munich better than Berlin. Munich had more of the things about a city that I like. Um, I also happen to have uh, relatives from Southern Germany and uh, you know, Catholic Germans who kind of look askance at Prussians, you know. Uh, so, so I may be biased, but uh, again, we have the idea of a city. There are cities out there. Some of them function better than others, right? And uh, so we can say a city ought to have certain types of things. We ought to be able to have uh, street lamps on, for example. Uh, we ought to be able to have our streets paved. We ought to have reasonable uh, disposal of waste. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not very good. We don't flourish if our garbage is sitting around all, all over the place, right? So these are objective things. We can say a city ought to do certain things, and a good city will. So finally, when we sort of boil all these things down and we, we say, uh, we take, what is a good human being, okay? We can actually reason to that. We can say, uh, let's start with other animals first though. So animals who are not human beings, we're animals, but we're not, uh, we're, we're rational animals in a way that other animals don't quite measure up to. Uh, but you can see, we, we had a couple of cats died a few months ago back in September. And, um, you know, at the end, Finn, who was 16 years old, wasn't doing so well. <laughs> he was sick. He was having trouble standing up, and he was, he was all, he was, Finn was always in a good mood. He was a great cat that way. But he was not flourishing as cats do. You know, he used to be a great bird hunter, and he actually managed to catch one bird this summer, which was pretty impressive given how weak he was. But he just didn't really have it anymore, you know. But cats, when they're, when they're on their game, they, they, they're great at catching birds, right? Um, they're great at scaring mice away. Um, when, when they sit on your lap and you pet them, they purr and they're very content. 
when they're old and sickly, they, they tend to go and sit in the corner and want to be left alone, you know? And so we say a cat, it has these certain properties that when they're met, the cat's life is good, right? And this is true for any species of animal. They each have their own properties and their, their own things that make them flourish. So dogs need a lot more attention than cats do to flourish, right? Dogs are pack animals, so they either need a pack of other dogs or they need people around who will give them orders and give them treats and stuff like that. And then they're, they're in their element, right? So uh, what about human beings? Well, the quick answer is that the classical tradition says what distinguishes us as animals is that we're rational, right? So for us to flourish, we have to be using our minds. Uh, we have to be organizing things in such a way as to make sure that we're not hampered by disease, um, by poverty, uh, so we have enough to eat, we have uh, a house, a roof over our heads, we have decent clothing, our relationships are in good order, and then we can start to understand things about the world, and this is the best thing we can do, right? This, peculiarly about human beings, again, uh, the, the more intelligent mammals tend to get pretty close to this. So dogs, dolphins, elephants, they're very, they, they hang out in groups, they help each other. They have a kind of dis, uh, distinction of uh, uh, roles within the groups. So they have families where different dolphins have different ro jobs to do. Uh, but human beings take this to a much higher level. Um, what, what's Adam Smith saying? I'm, I, it's on the top. Uh, Division of labor. We have division of labor in, in human beings, right? So for us to flourish, we have to flourish both in terms of uh, who we are as human beings, but also in terms of the role that we occupy in the larger society. Because one of the things we need is for society to be pretty stable and productive so that we feel safe and we can do the things we need to do. Uh, so we have these several levels of, of what it takes. And to coordinate these levels requires us to, to think about things and make good decisions. Right? So we have to think about what kind of policies do we want to have in our city so that we feel safe, so that we are safe, so that criminals don't get away with stuff or aren't tempted to do things. Um, what would be the best way to distribute our food to make sure we all have enough to eat, right? Should we just leave it to the market? Should we, uh, should we have uh, incentives for farmers and uh, grocery stores to do certain types of things to make sure we have our food? People are thinking about these things and trying to make decisions that will be the best for everybody. Sometimes not. Sometimes people are making decisions uh, that are best for them and not for everybody else. That's part of the problem. Too. <coughs> and then what happens is we flourish less as a group. So what allows us to uh, grow toward rationality, as I said at the very beginning, is growing in virtue. And there are four cardinal virtues and three theological virtues. So the cardinal virtues we talked about a couple months ago, uh, if we start at the lowest level, we start with temperance. We want to get uh, our, our sensual impulses under control so that we, we eat what we need and uh, we're not swayed by a too great desire for food or drink. Uh, we're chaste and we, we uh, direct our sexual energies in a way that's productive and not destructive. Um, you know, we know how to work, we know how to take care of our bodies, uh, we don't sleep too much, etc. And then we, from there we can move to the next level, which is courage or fortitude. 
Fortitude is an interesting one, and it, it seems to me one of the things that's very clear about dealing with the pandemic is that as a culture, we don't cultivate fortitude. And again, I'm not saying that, uh, that uh, I, I'm not saying this implies anything about actual policy with regard to uh, shutting down restaurants or wearing masks or whatever it is. It's just that the discussion, uh, we're, we're not comfortable talking about the fact that we're in this together and all of us are gonna die at some time. Like we have, that's the root idea of courage. All of us are gonna die and we have to be ready to give our lives when it's required of us. Uh, so soldiers are usually the uh, uh, sort of the archetype of courage because most theorists are men. And I would say mothers in childbirth in another way are archetypes of courage because this is a, a willingness to give one's life for someone else, right? So anytime the, a woman gives birth, there's always a chance that she'll be injured or could lose her life, especially you know, in times before say 1920, 1930 in the United States, many cultures today still. Uh, this is, it's a mark of courage to bring a child to term. Um, and it always presupposes that at, at any moment I could be called upon to let go of my life, okay? And uh, so if we were to talk about it, the pandemic in these terms, we might be able to talk together like how we might approach things differently and not just rely on, I think part of the difficulty is we rely on authorities that are too far away from the effects of the decisions they're making, right? So we have these statewide or national decisions that are made and every community is different, has different needs. Um, place like Chicago where we have much more interaction with each other, we probably need more safeguards, um, but we also have more people who can organize with each other. If you go out to um, uh, Upper Michigan, for example, I visited there this summer, um, you can drive for hours and not see anybody. <laughs> it's not likely if you leave your, your house, you're gonna infect someone or get infected. So um, uh, there's, there are a lot fewer restrictions. Plus uh, just the lack of density in general means that very few people have gotten sick. Uh, so, so each community has to think, well, what do we do together to, so that we can flourish as a group, the whole group, we can think about what our kids are gonna be needing in five years. So we make good decisions now to make sure they're ready, et cetera. Um, and again, I really am not qualified to make recommendations in terms of actual policy, but I think we might, if we were working at Virtue, we might have a more robust discussion about it. Uh, from there, we move up to justice, which is an extremely complex virtue. This, the idea of it's very simple, and that is that um, because we as uh, human beings exist in political groups, um, and we don't all do the same thing, we usually rely on other people to do certain services for us, and they rely on us to do certain services for them. And every time we perform a service for somebody else or receive a service from somebody, uh, the balance of justice goes out of sync for a bit because the root idea of justice is that for everything I receive, I give something in return of equal value. Okay, so if I receive from people, if, if uh, one of the things I receive, for example, is police protection, we have police patrolling the streets out there, 
uh, I should return something. Normally we do that in an indirect way by paying taxes. So the policeman gets a salary. Uh, also, I think one of the things we recognize is that because certain um, uh, jobs like policeman, fireman, emergency room worker, paramedic, these are dangerous jobs where a person might be called upon again to, or soldiers, another good one, person might be called upon to give his life at, at any moment. We owe them a certain honor because if they lose their lives in the line of duty, we can't give them back their lives. So one thing we can do is honor the potential sacrifice and the sacrifice of those who uh, maybe lost their lives in the line of duty so that the others who are in those dangerous professions recognize our gratitude for that, that, that we, we profit from their willingness to be uh, courageous, right? So justice, uh, I'm gonna, I'll probably come back to justice, but I really wanna get to the theological virtues today because uh, uh, that's where a lot of consolation comes in. Uh, so finally, we, at the very top, we get to prudence, which is uh, an intellectual virtue. You know, it's really uh, knowing how to reason about what I should do. And this is why it's often called the form of the virtues, because all the other virtues depend on prudence. Um, so for instance, with temperance, let's just take an easy example again. Um, different circumstances call for a different amount of food. And to know the difference between one circumstance and another, to some extent, is part of prudence. So um, <laughs> thinking about one, one year, uh, we always have a very strong uh, fast during Lent. And uh, one year we ate a lot of beans during Lent. And when it got to Easter, uh, the, the brother who was running the kitchen started feeling qualms about serving uh, meat during the Easter uh, octave, and, and uh, so a couple times we had beans. And uh, uh, this is this is not the correct diet for Easter, right? Uh, uh, may, maybe if, if someone is a, a, a very high-level ascetic, uh, he he might. Uh, but but in a community where everybody's been encouraging each other to fast for for 47 days, and now it's Easter. Uh, it's time to celebrate, and so we should have something a little nicer. Not, not, not forever, of course, you know. At, uh, once the Easter octave is over, we go back to a more normal diet. Um, but during that time, similarly, if it's a big feast day and it falls on a Friday, uh, our, our fast is dispensed, right? So um, uh, there's no rule for temperance. It has to be judged kind of case by case based on a whole constellation of considerations. And there's something very beautiful about this because it, it makes things human, right? We, we, we come to discover what it means to be a human being when we become virtuous, what it means to belong to a community. One of the toughest things I found, I just want to say one more thing about justice and then we're going to go to the infused uh, theological virtues. Uh, justice one of the most difficult things for us is recognizing the common good and that we need the common good. So I've already said in, in any community to which we belong, there's a necessity that the community itself as a kind of collective entity flourishes. If the community I'm in isn't flourishing, I'm not flourishing as I could be. So we all know this. When a family is having trouble, people aren't getting along, 
Uh, you know, the, the, the classic version of this would be in, in a family if the, the parents are fighting or, or, or thinking of separating or something. The kids usually don't flourish very well, right? Like the children have problems with anxiety. They stop performing well at school. Uh, maybe they get into trouble uh, by, you know, doing daredevil things or whatever. Uh, and uh, similarly, if uh, it can be the case that if a child has a chronic illness, it can put a lot of strain on the parents, right? So, so the whole family is struggling to flourish because one member is suffering in a particular way, right? Um, so we depend again on the flourishing of the groups to which we belong, our families, our neighborhoods, our cities, our nation, our parish, our monastery. And uh, this calls for what's known as distributive justice. And this is a difficult concept I've discovered even in the monastery. Uh, and the, the reason it's so difficult is because it presupposes something like authority. So uh, what happens in distributive justice is uh, I am called upon to make contributions for the common good. And then I, am, I receive from the common fund uh, a proportionate amount of the goods that we produce together. Proportionate depending on what my contributions are and what my needs are. And I'm usually not in a, and, and the thing is, it's a proportion of the whole and I have to share it with other people. And we're often not in the best position to know what would be a fair distribution of the goods. We need an authority to judge and say, this person's gonna get this much, this person's gonna get this much. And uh, as the superior, I can say that's not an easy thing to, to make. It's not an easy call. There are lots of ways to go wrong. Uh, one of the things you have to try to do is not favor one person over another. Um, one has to be cognizant of the actual weaknesses that brothers have. Sometimes uh, brothers can feign a weakness so that they can get something they want. Um, that's very possible. Um, sometimes brothers don't ask for things they need. So a uh, brother may uh, just be too shy to ask for something, and, uh, but he's not flourishing, he really needs something, and I need to notice that he needs this. Um, sometimes you, you make an exception for a brother and give him something, and it turns out not to work very well. It doesn't help him, <laughs> right? So these are the decisions that uh, the community as a whole can't make together, and the brother can't make, because... Someone has to be responsible for overseeing the whole thing. Uh, one of the typical problems in families, in monasteries, is that it would be easier to give everybody exactly the same thing. That would be easy, right? Um, but we all know it's just not possible. <laughs> um, you know, my mother got, I have three sisters, and my mother always got a kick out of the fact that uh, uh, by the time I got to high school, my, my parents were separated. So I was the only guy in the house and I was eating like as much as the rest of the family. Right? And they couldn't believe it, you know, but teenage boys need more food than nine-year-old girls by a lot, right? For all kinds of reasons. Uh, not only was I just larger and growing more, uh, but I was more active, right? Um, uh, on the other hand, more was expected of me. When it came time to do dishes, I was expected to do more work than my sisters. And one of the things my mother would typically tell me if there was a dispute in the, in, among my sisters and me was, uh, well, you're the oldest, you're responsible, it's your fault, 
Like, if there's a fight, you should do something about it. <laughs> uh, you shouldn't expect your younger sisters to be uh, as mature as you are. So I expect you to, to figure it out, right? So, um, and this is normal. So we're not expecting the same thing from people to, to contribute, nor are we being rewarded with the same amount of stuff from the common fund. So this is really important to understand because uh, we have a tendency, I think, to see ourselves as individuals, not dependent on the common good. Uh, and we have a tendency just to forget that we're contributing to a common good and that sometimes we're called upon, I mean, this is again part of courage. We're called upon to give when, when we're not gonna get much in return, but somebody has to do it. There's an unpleasant job and it falls to me, it's my duty to do something about it. And uh, uh, the, the community will suffer if I don't do something, but I'm not likely to get rewarded much for it. I may actually suffer a lot. Uh, so what's ideal in that situation is that the rest of the people in the situation then are, are thankful. Right? So gratitude is actually a virtue. It's part of justice. Um, but oftentimes those sorts of contributions are not obvious to people who benefit from them. So it's good for us to pay attention to what other people are doing to contribute as well and to be grateful. Okay, so that's a quick overview of, of these things. And again, any of these things, we can be thinking about how can I grow in temperance today? You know, where, where did I fail yesterday? Where did I have more than I needed? Uh, how can I be more courageous? What are some difficult things I could take on in my life uh, so that I can uh, grow in dealing with the unpleasantness of being out of my depth, you know? So grow in... Uh, Encourage always requires us to do things that are a little scarier than the last thing we did successfully. Um, that doesn't mean uh, courting danger, just means asking myself, you know. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, the unpleasant thing that I have to do, learning to do it with more graciousness, right? And not anger or resentment or whatever it is. Um, how can I grow in prudence? How can I learn from my mistakes? That's the key thing for me. To grow in prudence, I have to make decisions and then I have to evaluate whether it was a good decision. What actually happened when I made that decision? Uh, what would I have done differently? And how am I going to act differently the next time? Uh, how can I grow in gratitude? How can I grow in patience? All the, there, there are more virtues than the four cardinal <coughs> virtues. The cardinal virtues are the ones that kind of connect them all together. Now, here's the good news. That could sound like works righteousness or something like that, right? Um, I'm, I'm telling you off to go out there and be good people. But it's, it's a little more, uh, the, the, the situation is rosier than that. Uh, when, when you and I were baptized, uh, we received the gift of unity with the divine nature. And uh, in Catholic theology, we would say that infused into our souls were the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. So these are gifts from God. This is really important to understand. But they're also virtues, and that means that they're gifts that we want to put to use so that they become stronger in us, they become more habitual. So this is why if you look at old Catholic prayer books, you'll find these little one page that says active faith, right? active hope, active love. So you have to take the action, do the thing, Say, say the prayer and mean it more intensely every time. I really believe in everything that the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ became man and died for our sins. You can recite the creed and just think about every 
word in the creed, believe it with greater intensity, act as if it were true, make an act of hope. You know, I believe that God wants to save me and will give me the things I need to make it to heaven. Um, And then act as if that were true and you'll grow in hope. That's another thing we're not really good at in our world today is hope. Uh, And again, I think to be willing to give my life for the community, it helps to have hope (laughs) that I'll go to heaven, right? That, that's, a, that's a good thing to have. That'll make me more willing to be generous with my life because even if things don't work out for me in this life, this isn't the only life. I have a, 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 a much better life waiting for me. And uh, that's what hope is, is believing that that is what awaits. And so uh, I can take chances in this life and uh, in serving other people, in denying myself, because God has put this hope in me through, through the Holy Spirit. And of course, charity, uh, <coughs> the gift of the Holy Spirit in us gives us a share in the Trinitarian life. So we're, that's, our common good is now the common good of the Holy Trinity in a sense, which is a bit of a pleonasm, if I can use that word, because um, the Holy Trinity itself is the good, as it were. Um, but we're participating in that. Uh, as long as we remain in a state of, state of sanctifying grace, right? So as long as we don't commit a mortal sin, uh, we are partaking of that divine life. Uh, again, charity is a virtue. That means we need to exercise it for it to grow. And the great thing about virtues is the better we get at them, the easier it gets to get better in a sense. Um, that's another interesting thing about the spiritual life. Um, uh, there, there, again, there isn't a terminus where we get to, we sort of get to a level and top out, we can't go beyond that. Um, when our physical powers start to fail, I would say the, the cardinal virtues may be a bit more difficult to carry out. I, I mentioned this to the guys in class yesterday that um, uh, it's, a, it's really important to be patient with people who are really sick. Because uh, when people are suffering a lot, especially if they have chronic pain of some kind, uh, it's much more difficult to be patient, right? It's, it's very difficult uh, not to lash out at people uh, if, if we're having a really bad time of it. Um, what else can I say about that? Uh, once, it's hard to think about justice at those times, right? We're just thinking about surviving and, and um, uh, trying to be patient within the suffering. Um, what, what made me think of this now is that the way I had said it, uh, I, I'm afraid that when I said it to the class yesterday, I made it sound as if this is a fault of the people who are sick, which is not what I meant. Uh, but it really falls to us to be uh, understanding when people are sick or suffering in some other way. I think this is the, the problem of, uh, of abuse. Someone who's been abused often these irrational responses from our perspective to normal uh, stimuli in life. And one of the things that helps in healing is being patient in the midst of that, not expecting immediate change, um, but always having hope for a change. So we call this, I mentioned this term sanctifying grace. This is one of the terms that Catholic theology uses for talking about our participation in the divine life. And when we talk, uh, and particularly in the East, there's this term divinization, uh, 
we, uh, in the West, we use that term, but we, we tend to talk more in terms of participation in divine life. Divinization implies a kind of process, and this would be growing in virtue again. This would be growing especially in the virtue of charity because God is love. So we become more and more conformed to God the more we love. And this is something that we can exercise. It's a virtue. We can grow in it. We can become more loving. One of the ways we can do this is to love our neighbor for the sake of God. This is very, a very helpful distinction. Uh, it's good to love our neighbor just because they're people, right? Um, and uh, unbelievers understand this. Uh, certainly it's more pleasant for us when we love people. Um, and uh, it's more pleasant for us when others love us. But for us to grow in this sanctifying virtue of charity, we also want to love the person because God loves that person, right? And God is present in that person. And so by loving my neighbor because of God, uh, I really elevate a human impulse to love into a divine participation, right? So we, we take something that's human and uh, we, we allow grace to infuse it with uh, divine energy. Uh, this, again, we can miss out on this in our relationships with each, which, with each other if we fall in just to a sort of human charity or human love, let's, let's say. Um, and uh, this is why loving our enemies is so important for growing in virtue. Because when it's easy to love someone because they're agreeable to us, it's also easy to fall into just a human love. If we want to act in divine love, it's helpful to work on loving those people who are less agreeable to us. <laughs> and um, uh, a story I'll, I'll tell you on this count was uh, an abbot I know uh, told me a story that when he was ordained a deacon, uh, his, he had a, a dear aunt who uh, uh, was very devout. And as they were walking from the, the liturgy to the reception, um, he pointed to another monk from the community and said, ah, that man there, there goes my cross. And his aunt said to him, if he's your cross, you should run up and embrace him. <laughs> right? And this is a very simple idea from, uh, I think, a simple believer, but it encapsulates a profound truth that it's actually by loving our enemies, you, you'll probably see this on the internet sometimes, we love God as much as we love the person we love the least, right? And that's just theologically true, which is it's very challenging. But the difficulty is when we love people because they're, they appeal to us, um, that we're not acting with divine grace in that case, necessarily. We could if we're doing it because we love God. And we're grateful to God for putting this person in our life. But it's harder to be grateful for the people who rub us the wrong way or who are persecuting us for that matter. But this is why the martyrs are so wonderful. You know, they, they manifest peace, acceptance, and even love of their persecutors in the midst of being tortured and killed in the worst possible ways. Um, there are some stories of the English martyrs uh, and there, there, there are several stories of martyrs who, you know, in the midst of being tortured in various ways, they continue to preach. 
And uh, the, the goal of the torturers is to try to make them so miserable that they'll stop preaching, right? <laughs> but eventually they just have to cut their heads off to get it over with because it's not working. <laughs> um, I think it's Paul Miki uh, and the Japanese martyrs when they were crucified. So they're, they're actually hanging on the crosses and they're preaching to everybody. They're encouraging one another to say, you know, let's say our, our father now. Okay. And uh, again, finally the executioners come up, take their swords out and say, we've got to get this over with because they're going to convert everybody. <laughs> so the martyrs have love for their enemies, right? And uh, they've, they've practiced this divine charity to such an extent that it's, a, it's habitual. It's a habit to love everybody. So this is quite within our, our grasp because God gives us what we, what we need. And as I say, the encouraging thing about this is these virtues are infused in our souls at baptism. They're given to us by God. God wants us to exercise them. He gives us the, the actual grace or the gifts of the Holy Spirit to energize these virtues when we need them. And all we need to do is ask him. Uh, in our old martyrology, uh, there was, I, I forget the name of the saint. I, want to, I should look this up sometime. But his prayer was, uh, uh, oh God, it would cost you nothing to make me a saint. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be difficult for you. So please do it. I'm not asking you very much, <laughs> right? And uh, this will dispose us then to do the things that saints do, uh, especially to be patient in suffering. Uh, so uh, there I get to the end of my notes. And I wanted to leave some time today because as I said, I, I wanted to say a little more about the virtues today uh, and to give a fairly comprehensive background to them because it's a challenge uh, to remember these things, to put them into action in our lives. And uh, I thought I would leave a, a certain amount of time if there were questions or if there's uh, either questions about things I'm talking about, questions about the church's teaching on the virtues or, or vices or whatever it is, or uh, just practical questions about what to do in certain circumstances. Uh, so I'll give the floor to you, anyone who wants to ask questions at this point. <coughs> yes. Um, so it would seem, I know this, this can't be right in my head, but trying to wrap my head around it, especially with justice, but whenever I'm not, I know succeeding is the wrong word either, but practicing a virtue, am I practicing a vice then in its place? Because that's, how it seems, right? Justice especially. I was driving today, got stuck in traffic. I didn't have patience, that's for sure. And I thought there was no justice being served as this person would not let me merge. All right, simple example. I know it sounds silly, but right? But it, that leads to the vice of anger usually, right? I felt angry and I had to slow down and say, okay, I'm coming to the monastery today. Hey, take it easy. So, yeah. So that's my comment. Sure, sure. So I would, I would answer that in a couple ways. One is that uh, because of the dynamism of human life, we're either going forward or backward. You know, we, it's, uh, this is a difficulty. If we don't try to make more intense acts of a virtue, we're, we're usually going to be slip sliding back. <coughs> so, uh, so that's important to realize. Uh, we, we should try not to be too comfortable where we're at. Um, the second thing is uh, Aristotle makes this really helpful distinction between uh, there's virtue on the one hand and there's vice on the other hand. In between, there is this battleground, which is continence versus incontinence. So a vice is really when I have the habit of, I, I can't control myself. Every time I'm cut off in the, in the traffic, I, I get angry and curse. Um, if I want to break that vice, 
I first have to go through a period of what's called incontinence. And that is, I'm probably going to screw up uh, uh, maybe for every time I, I catch myself and don't get angry, I get angry three times. And I want to get to the point where every, for every time I don't get angry, I only get angry once. And then I want to get, move into the area that's called continence. So in that battleground where we're losing more than we're winning, that's called incontinence. So we still have, um, we still act in accord with the vice, but less often. It's not as addicted. We're not as addicted to the vice as we were before. It's not as habitual. We're working against it, but it's still, it's still what we want to do. Incontinence, we get to a point where we no longer overtly lose our temper, but we still want to, <laughs> right? So there's an internal battle. It's not easy for us to be patient. When we become virtuous and truly patient, it becomes easy, right? So now it's a habit because habits are easy to do, right? When, when you have the habit... Um, one of the things we find when brothers enter the monastery, many of them don't have the habit of getting up at three in the morning, for example. So it's hard at first, right? But for me now, if, even if I go and visit my mother, um, I wake up at three o'clock, <laughs> right? Because that's a, it's a habit. Um, it's easy. Uh, so that's, at both ends, virtue and vice, it's, it's easy to do the action over and over again. It's habitual. In the middle is the battleground between incontinence and continence, and the goal is for the, the right action to become habitual. Right? Yeah, Matt. I just have a question of clarification mm -hmm. about the uh, origin of this particular formulation of the cardinal virtues, mm -hmm. um, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. I'm assuming that's a, a classical thing that comes to us from, from Aristotle, mm -hmm. Christianized by Aquinas. Mm -hmm. Is it that simple? Uh, I, I can give you a little more. It seems actually to have been um, taken for granted already by Socrates. So he seems to know that this is, uh, these cardinal virtues are recognized. But it's definitely a Greek idea, um, though I think virtually anybody in the Christian or Islamic tradition, Jewish tradition that have come across these recognizes there's really, there's something very powerful to it. Really seizes upon realities of, the, of human nature. Um, it begins, uh, the Christianization of these actually begins with the Book of Wisdom. So the Book of Wisdom actually lists the cardinal virtues and uh, attributes them to its sort of revelation to Solomon. And uh, uh, so already in the, f uh, critics would say that this book is written in the first century uh, before Christ. And then what you see in, say, the letters of St. Paul is Paul is extremely conversant in the whole language of virtue, even though he doesn't name the, the uh, cardinal virtues systematically because he's not writing systematically. Uh, he's aware of the tradition of virtues and what they stand for. And he's, you see that he's, he's urging us uh, to practice the virtues, to think about the virtues, to think about noble things. He's using more the language of Stoicism than of Aristotle, um, but he's drawing on that same lineage. Uh, it's true that in the Middle Ages, there's a systematization, systematization of the virtues that is pretty much unparalleled even until today. And it's still, uh, partly I have this stuff close to hand because I just worked my way through Aquinas very carefully on, on these questions. And it's, it's really remarkable, the, the synthetic power of that. And it's, it's a shame that we've lost sight of it. And this is one of the reasons why I started with this thing with is and ought. Because where we lose track of what the virtues are is 
more or less beginning in the 16th century with uh, the scientific revolution where we pay attention to what things are and then moral philosophy becomes a completely separate thing. And uh, this no, the virtues no longer make sense in that, that context. So anyway, that's kind of the history. Does that address what you're thinking of? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes, Mark. Yeah, yeah. So um, the the cardinal virtues are, are traditionally given this hierarchy. The prudence is at the top because it's the most intellectual one, and it is the form of the other virtues. Because all the virtues, you're trying to find a mean between extremes. And prudence is that virtue that allows us to see and adjust to the circumstances and so on. Um, justice is next because uh, it's not just my good. Uh, both uh, fortitude and temperance have to do with me mastering my passions for my own good. But when I start talking about justice, I'm really thinking about everyone else's good as well. So it's a higher virtue. Um, I have to be thinking about temperance not only for myself but for others right so um, I think about uh, for example if I am a, a person who has heart disease and his family history I might want to be especially attentive to my diet and exercise for the sake of my <coughs> people I work with for my wife and kids right so I'm no longer just mastering myself I'm contributing to the common good so it's a higher virtue than courage and in fact we, we normally would say a soldier who's called upon to risk his life does so for the common good, right? For the defense of his homeland, et cetera, right? So that's, that's why they have that relationship, yeah. This is an example of courage. An example of courage is uh, to be able to lay down one's life as a soldier, for example. And the reason I, I would be willing to do that is because there's this higher good of justice and the common good, right? Okay. I, I wouldn't just, you know, I, I risk my life because other people will benefit, hopefully. Risk your life for justice. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Joseph. The way I called it was uh, uh -huh. Chloe's virtues. Kind of an example, like it would be humility and patience, calling mm -hmm. virtues, where it seemed it would be manifest in different situations. Like mm -hmm. you might be patient in a situation because you're humble enough to know that you don't know enough, so to be just. Uh -huh. You have to be patient, be patient because you're hopeful. Mm -hmm. So they're not mm -hmm. classified, or mm -hmm. are they classified as verbal patients as a virtue is a critical cliche, mm -hmm. but are they ones that kind of move around from category to category? Yeah. I, well, I think all the virtues are, are related to each other, and the more we practice any virtue, the easier the other ones will become. So that's another encouraging thing. And uh, I, I did mention at one point there are there are different, different theorists have different lists of virtues. And sometimes we discover virtues that other eras didn't know about. Humility as a virtue is particularly interesting because it's a Christian virtue that the Greeks thought was not a virtue, right? So uh, Aristotle famously, his, his great man, has nothing to do with the plebeians, right? His best kind of person. And, and to be this kind of person, you have to be a free man. You have to be Greek. You have to be a man, you can't be a woman. You can't be a child, can't be, uh, can't be poor. And uh, so the idea of Christian humility is just way outside Aristotle's thinking. And yet, 
Uh, I do believe that humility is really important. So for example, what you said, to be prudent means to be humble enough to know when I need to seek advice and then to take that advice seriously and not waste people's time by getting their advice and then not acting on it in some way, right? So humility uh, also disposes us for the theological virtues in the sense that we can't save ourselves. We can't participate in the divine life except by God's gift. And so to imagine that we could get to heaven on our own or that we could merit salvation is a mistake that we make because we lack humility to some extent, right? So, but anyway, I would just say, yes, um, I would consider humility a virtue and patience a virtue. And I do think that all the virtues pull in the same direction. And it's, uh, I, I was hoping to say a little bit about the incarnation today. It's the incarnation that reveals these things to us because it's Christ's humility that's the pattern for all these. So I just remembered that uh, Charlie had his hand up over here and then I'll, I'll get to you about the Timothy. Yeah, go ahead. Just, just an observation uh, uh -huh. from my own experience uh, with that battle ground we spoke of between uh -huh. vice and virtue. I, if I think of it, I don't always think of it, I'm mopping with a situation where I'm entrapped and act out or whatever, but if I think about it, I, I picture this picture, or a saying that was on the wall of my freshman algebra class and it said, be sure brain is engaged before putting mouth in here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That is good. That's, that's a prudent thing. And, is that from yeah. stoicism or is that from... <clears throat> um, well, I think that's, uh, that would fall into folk wisdom. There are many Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that are similar, you know. The wise man is known by his few words, right? Father Timothy. I just wanted to make a, a connection with something that we read together uh, this past summer, uh, Michael Casey's book on, uh, on humility. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I think in, in that book, he first of all argues that humility is, is, is the central virtue for St. Benedict, and it's one of the most mm -hmm. uh, challenging teachings for us uh, in the rule. Um, but he also, I think, to be provocative, and I, I was curious what you would have to say about this in light of what you, you, you just uh, uh, spoke in response to Joseph. Um, in order to be provocative, I think he, he argues that humility is not a virtue. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, um, and he's not using, he's using a kind of practical monastic mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, Framework rather than a sort of systematic framework of the mm -hmm. kind that you would find, say, in, in Aquinas. Mm -hmm. But he, he argues that it's not something that can be that can be uh, exercised through re repetition. It's a, it's a disposition uh, of receptivity that kind of comes even before that, mm -hmm. um, that is prior even to virtue as as habit. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd be curious what you would have to say about that. Yeah, I think that's a fair distinction. Um, uh, I would say colloquially to speak of it as a virtue makes some sense in, in the sense that the more humble we become, the easier it is to be humble. Uh, but yes, the difficulty with humility is, is always that, that, that paradox that if we can achieve it, we're probably not going to end up humble. It's something that is... Uh, a, a, a peculiar kind of gift that we received through being humble. <laughs> and it's a perception of ourselves that's accurate, 
Um, it's, I think it's best exercise in a loving and trusting relationship with God, knowing that we're creatures and, and we're not God. God has that prerogative, not us. Um, I was just going to mention that Mother Mary Claire uh, Vincent gave our retreat many years ago. Uh, she, she died just a few years ago. She was the retired prioress at uh, uh, St. Scholastica's in Petersham, Massachusetts. And she began one of her retreat conferences. And she was just the gentlest person, you know. She said, uh, uh, because we are Benedictines, we all want to be humble. And the quickest way to humility is through humiliations. <laughs> How am I to argue with that? But that's hard. Um, and uh, so to receive, to, to uh, this is actually where silence can be very helpful. Because oftentimes when something happens to us that offends our sense of pride, we want to lash out and correct the person, right? And uh, if we simply are quiet and then wait until we think about it, we could say, well, maybe that rebuke or whatever it was was something that's going to help me to be humble. Yeah, you know. this is... Uh, when I first read that book, uh, I, I found it terrifying, actually. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's so challenging, um, precisely because he shows how growth is, is precisely... Uh, it moves in the opposite direction from what we, we come to expect in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about failing, in a sense. It's about uh, resisting the temptation to act. It's about uh, being more and more open and receptive to what com whatever comes, because God is working in that confidence that God is, is acting on the openness to God's action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so it, it uh, yeah, it, to, to see that as, as really the heart of the, of the rules challenge for us mm -hmm. uh, in, in the contemporary, but also seeing that in, in, in cooperation with the other uh, aspects of the life of virtue. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where, um, if, if I were to redo this uh, talk today, I might get to the theological virtues earlier and stress them more, because this disposition of humility, I think, only makes sense and is only fair in the milieu of faith, right? So... Uh, to believe, and this is where we should always keep in mind that in addition to the uh, gift of unity with the divine nature that we receive in baptism, we also die. Okay, so, so we, our, our human life is given over, and uh, one of the ways I like to express it is when St. Paul, in uh, his letter to the Philippians, I think it's in chapter 3, he says, it would be much better for me to die and be with Christ, but for your sake, I'm still here. This is, in a sense, what's true for all of us who've been baptized. In baptism, we died. But God sent us back into the world for his purposes. And so all of our time here, we're servants of God in some way. And however the world treats us, because we're baptized, we have faith and hope that God is going to save us and that the appearances are not the reality, right? Um, and uh, that the part that resists is the part of us that's supposed to be dying. <laughs> but that's hard. Uh, I, I often have said uh, that uh, when, you, when you baptize a baby and the baby uh, screams or something, the, the baby gets it. <laughs> and this is actually, uh, the, uh, there's a death going on, but there's also this amazing rebirth, but it's only rebirth that can be seen by faith. It's not something that the world can see by its own sight. So, yes? 
Dennis. Uh, patience and uh, perseverance. Mm -hmm. I like lock up uh, St. Mary's Church and leave every night, well, six nights a week. Mm -hmm. And my dad used to have patience of the saint. I have patience of a fire pilot. Like my <laughs> <in front of me. laughs> and uh, so, no matter what, I catch the light on 47 and the side road that leads to 47 from the mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. No matter what, I catch it. <laughs> so, so over the months right. I catch the sight every single night, I'm, I'm learning the patience, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I always pray for patience and God just doesn't zap his hand and give it to you, he puts you in situations, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but now when I catch a green, I'm like, yes! <laughs> you know, it's, yes. It's so nice. But uh, that's, that's all I got. Yeah, well, you know, I, Father Timothy can attest to this. I. Patience is one of my biggest struggles because uh, just e each person has a different temperament, and my temperament is is pretty pretty fiery. And um, one of the things that helps me with patience is to remember that the word itself means suffering. It means, and, and it also means allowing. So the word suffer also in early earlier English simply means to allow things to happen and not intervene. But we experience this as a kind of suffering because we feel like we should be doing something rather than suffering something, allowing something, being passive. Passive is related to the word patience. So allowing God to do his work on me, it, it won't feel good in the moment, but it's actually what I need. Um, and uh, the older I get, the more I, I recognize how important patience is. Um, so, uh, but you reminded me of one other thing with that. Uh, but uh, anyway, and, and, the, uh, uh, go ahead. it's a two-minute light, I know that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. There's some record players at Walmart again. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So good. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, but let me just say, it's always a real privilege to be with you. I really appreciate that we're able to gather here together. And uh, you're, you're a real blessing to our community. And um, let's just keep praying for each other. Let's pray for our, our world. And let's be confident that God will keep us faithful to him. And that we will be able to help our neighbors as we, we go forth today. And let's pray together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.